0: This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10am. You're on Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Please remember you can email me inbox at radleycheck.radio. You can text me at 2057. Wow. Those responses have been definitive. Everyone wants to hear from Professor Elizabeth Rata more and more and more, and Prof. Elizabeth Rada has written just a stunning article explaining so much and cutting through so much nonsense. And it's this idea, Elizabeth, that there, we're actually dealing with two treaties. Could you explain that to us? Yes, I
1: think... The two treaties are, the first is the Articles Treaty, which is the treaty signed in 1840, has three articles, and we we know what those articles are. And then from the 1980s, the meaning of that treaty, of those articles, was detached from the thing itself from the treaty, the words in the treaty and what they meant, there was a detachment. They were separated. So the words and the meaning were separated. And we then had new meaning given, and that new meaning created what I call a second treaty, the Principles Treaty. Now, the Principles Treaty Has words uh, partnership, active uh, protection, uh, redress that do not appear in the 1840 treaty at all. So they have a new treaty has been constructed and given authority by a very small group of powerful people, and we have been told this is the treaty. No, it's not the treaty. The Treaty has three articles which say something quite different from this Principles Treaty with a capital P. Um, These principles have been given a capital P. They are made to um, appear to be the truth, but they're simply an ideology created by a small group of influential, powerful people.
0: How did it come about that you have a written treaty that was well debated by the chiefs and discussed and those debates as we know were recorded and they clearly understood the significance of what there was they were signing they weren't savages writing you know across not understanding it they understood perfectly and that treaty was actually a beautiful, wonderful document. How could that, how did it come to pass that everything we talk about today, from professors, from teachers, every politician, from the judges, from every government department, is this completely different treaty. How did this different treaty come about? How was that that achieved? How do you make a new treaty out of an old treaty?
1: Yes, Yes. gosh, what a question. And um, there are a number of reasons, and each reason is embedded in a deeper reason. On the surface, it occurred because a group of powerful people, uh, um, activist judges, law professors, and so on, um, insisted that this was the truth. But that's different from getting people to believe it. So then you have to get people to believe something that is in your interests. But there was an additional element, and it's the failure of our parliamentary representatives. They went along with it, despite not knowing what they were doing. And Simon Upton, who was a member of parliament in the 1990s, has actually said when we inserted the principles of the treaty into legislation, we didn't actually know what we were doing. So it's almost as though you have um, the ideologues, the the treatyists I call them, and I certainly don't call them Māori because there are, they're both Maori and non-Maori. So you have the ideologues who are pushing a particular um, position because, of course, they will benefit from it. And you know, fair enough, that's what groups of people do. Um, and then you have our our parliamentary representatives, our members of parliament, who should have stopped it. It was re- it is their responsibility to represent us, the people. Their authority. Is, is the authority that we allow them to have. Mm. And for them to do something, starting in 1986 and in every piece of legislation since then, they have inserted the principles of the this new principles treaty into every piece of legislation instead of saying, hang on, stop. What are we doing? Mm -hmm. What do these principles mean? And what is their relationship to the articles of the treaty? They have not done that. But then, of course, the third group is us, the people. How have we allowed it to happen?
0: Yes. Um, I might be able to shed some light because you may know the story or you may not. But Richard Preble told me this story. And I think in 1986, you'll be referring to the usage of the word principles in the State-Owned Enterprises Act. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, Richard tells, tells me this story, that they were having trouble with Maori leaders getting the state-owned enterprises legislation into, into, through, into law and that Jeffrey Palmer had gone off to do this negotiation. And I should say, Richard never had a very low opinion of Sir Jeffrey. And he came back and said, I've solved it. All we need to do is add in, nothing in this legislation shall, I can't remember the legal phrase, abrogate or contradict or some fancy word, the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi. And you'll be familiar, that was used in the 75 Waitangi Tribunal Act, but it was consistent with the Articles Treaty. This was just floating in the air. So this law professor and very senior cabinet minister had negotiated that we would just insert this into the State-Owned Enterprises Act. That nothing would abrogate the principles of the treaty. And Richard says he asked Sir Geoffrey, he wasn't Sir Geoffrey then, what does that mean? And Sir Geoffrey said, This is the beauty of it. It's meaningless.
1: <laughs> oh, that's, yes. And, and, and Geoffrey Palmer had actually um, already consulted with Happy Peter Hugh up in Tufari and ah. been told. That they would, the iwi leaders would be happy if this phrase was used. And Jeffrey Palmer thinking, yes, I will take a phrase and I will just uh, allow it, I will consider it meaningless. Well, that is the beginning of an egregious. Egregious. Um, <laughs> Everything <laughs> flows from that. Yes, because after that, anyone can put any meaning they want to into this this word these principles that acquired a capital P that became a thing all of themselves and from then on it was up for grabs let's say let's, let's say what these things mean yes
0: and Richard said to to Jeffrey that he didn't think that words just sit in legislation without meaning he said if they don't have meaning they'll be given a meaning <laughs> and then as I understand it Elizabeth it was Robin Cook, who came along and said, Bill, well, if
1: Parliament won't articulate these principles, we will. Yes. And you see, at that point, Parliament should have said, no, mm. just do not do that. Parliament mm. uh, legislates. Parliament says what legislation means because it is authority. Once it's legislation is passed, legislation has meaning. It is It is authority at that point. Mm. It is not for judges. To take over no. democratic authority, and of course, that's what what happened.
0: And the one I think that Simon Upton would have been referring to was the Resource Management Act, because he was the minister that oversaw that coming into law. But it was actually authored by Sir Geoffrey Palmer. Yes,
1: that would be yes, that was the 1991. Yes, that would be right. And um, you know, to play around with such an important word, and for a lawyer to do it. I mean a law professor. All, a law professor of all people should know that every word counts and every word placed in a context counts. Well,
0: either he was played and isn't very bright, or he wasn't played and he isn't he is bright. He knew exactly what he was doing and just minimized it.
1: Either possible. Apparently, he came back from having gone up to meet Happy Hugh who came back very pleased with the outcome. Um, so I don't. We we don't know what his motives. No. To,
0: well, we nevertheless, the effect has been, as you describe it, a whole new treaty.
1: Yeah, and the other thing is. Um, especially um, once the partnership principle became um, a holier than thou thing itself of sacred you know, even though of course as we know um, partnership is not part of the treaty, but it has become so. Once you say that you have two partners and they are um, they have the sacred Accord between them, all this created, invented, Principles Treaty, then you have to start to define the two partners in a permanent, ongoing, timeless way. Mm. And that's where the term Indigenous became really significant. Now, right up into into the 70s, even early 80s, people didn't use the word Indigenous. No. It was a bit like, you know, the word ethnicity. Mm. In the 60s, people used the word race. Race was replaced by ethnicity from the 70s onwards. Um, and, with, and there's real significance to that, but I, I really want to talk about indigenous here. Indigenous was a word that was only really used in anthropology. It was, you know, quite a had a scientific meaning. But once it entered um, public discourse, and it came via the United Nations, and then United Nations established um, an Indigenous committee. Um, and, of course, it became the word Indigenous became, created a group. And, of course, once you create a group, then the group will think, what are we? How do we define ourselves? What sort of power do we want? What sort of resources do we want? So Indigenous really took off in the 1980s. And you mm. you heard people in New Zealand use it when a decade earlier, they, they didn't. So that uh, became a way to create the two partners.
0: I had always
1: imagined
0: when the UN was speaking about caring for Indigenous peoples, in my mind's eye, I was always picturing like, an Amazon tribe who were running around with spears, unaware of the entire world. And we had become aware of Europeans approaching these tribes and wiping them out or making them desperately um, decimated because of novel diseases. And it was a tough one what to do with these literally indigenous tribes that were living a stone age lifestyle in the jungle and how do you cope and that was my understanding of what the UN initially was about. And and, and then it's become literally and Harry. <laughs>
1: yeah. It was actually it actually the word indigenous actually grew out of um uh um, a committee in the UN in the 60s looking at um, workers' rights. Oh wow. And of course you there's there's um scholarship in anthropology which which sees um the idea of indigenous as the people at the beginning of the modern period, four or five hundred years ago, beginning of industrialization and so on. You had many people throughout the world moving out of villages down from the hills into the new uh, mm-hmm. industrial cities that were developing. Mm-hmm. And so you get a division at that point between those who have left and those who have stayed. Um, and over time, we now think of those who have stayed as um, indigenous. Okay. okay. But they, they are simply people who, in, in the development of, of the modern world, um, t- took a different route. And in that
0: sense, then, there are no, in that concept, like every Maori in New Zealand has joined the modern world.
1: Well, every, I mean, all human beings have. Our, yes. The history of humanity is of us moving. We move yes. and then we settle for a time. We move again. And it's always in response to desperately wanting to improve our circumstances to enable us to live and to um and for the lives of our descendants. That's the history of the world. And mm. so it's a history of settlers, of migrants. And that's why I would prefer, instead of us talking about um, New Zealand as being divided into Indigenous and non-indigenous, I would rather we talk about settlers. So we see the first wave of settlers were those who came um across the Pacific uh, and reached New Zealand in the 13th century. And since then, there was, you know, what's five, six hundred years, and then new waves of settlers. And so the people who came here in the 13th century are, in a way, no different from those who came last year. Mm. We are all people doing what humans have done for what? There's uh, a strange. 500,000 years. (laughs) There's the other
0: clever thing in all of this is to introduce the collectivist. Way of thinking. So the original treaty is very much about the individual. And that would be the philo- political, philosophical thinking, the individual rights that each person enjoys. But as soon as you introduce this idea of two peoples, well, one people is a collective and the other people, and it's like they have a single way of thinking. And we see this over and over and over. And of course, then you need two people, a a leader of each people telling us what they think. And so, and you'll hear Maori politicians say, my people, right? Which, again, is this collective sort, or Maori think this.
1: Well, I would say tribal leaders, because there are many people of Maori descent um, and of Maori identity who identify very strongly as Maori who do who are not tribalists. Mm. So I, that's that's why for me it's very important to talk about um, the politi- this political activism as being driven by by tribalists who are. Um, wanting to institute um, the tribe as the political category, and of course, then the tribe is is what will acquire not just resources, but if you're going to acquire economic resources, it's quite handy to have a lot of political power to go with them. Wow! But you can get more resources. You can yeah. hold on to what you've got. Plus, well, that's exactly even, what's happened, isn't
0: you know, it? Add Under water, for example. Yes, that's exactly what has happened.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. it's been a amazingly fast thing where you accept um a partnership you then have to consult with the partner which then becomes the tribal elite goodness knows how they become the tribal elite you then have ministers of the crown consulting with these tribal leaders on matters of importance as though they are partners, and then that just develops naturally into co-governance
1: where it's formalised. So the idea becomes the reality. Yes. Yeah. And but very it's, not, it's not actually real. It's something we have allowed to happen.
0: And whether you're Maori or uh, of European descent or settler, uh, later settler descent, the entire system, has disempowered you. So Maori are in the same circumstance as us because the power is now residing with this tribal elite and the politicians who have the pleasure of negotiating with them and we're left out of it.
1: Yeah, Yes, well, I don't think in terms of us, I think in terms of here we have all these people in New Zealand who are citizens, who have all come here, you know, in these waves of settlement, all wanting the same thing for their descendants, you know, a prosperous, peaceful life. And here is a small group of people made up of, driven initially by a very small number, uh, uh, the Maori graduates of the 1950s, Mm -hmm. their children. um, And then, of course, in more recent times, there are now many, many, I prefer to use the term tribal, not iwi, because once again, it's a matter of controlling language. And when we talk, if we use, if we're speaking English, which we are, then the word is tribe. And in English, tribe has a connotation of a kinship structure. So we're clear that we're talking about a kinship political structure. When that word is removed and replaced with a word from another language, Then there is a process, it becomes mystified. It becomes, it acquires some sort of almost sacred meaning. Mm -hmm. um, As though it has always existed. And this is this business of creating um, timelessness. So the impression is that the tribes speaking today on their own behalf are the direct inheritors of the tribes of the past. But no, that is not the case. The introduction of a completely new political system and a completely different type of society has meant that the traditional world ended. I mean, there there are some things We've all kept from you know our traditional ancestors because we value perhaps there might be cultural practices or customs. Can't think of many actually. When I, mean, I think of most traditional um mm. well, I mean culture is tyranny, people have moved from the traditional to the modern because it's a much better way to live. Yes, and given female in a traditional society, I yes. certainly
0: wouldn't like to. And given the choice. Everyone wants to jump the fence to modernity. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Because it's wealthier, freer, Mm -hmm. and more joyful.
1: Yes. And just the fact that we live a lot longer, that that we have been able to develop a political system, liberal democracy, with principles of freedom, that we have the political category, which is separate from, from our identity. So it doesn't matter what our identity is. We have the political category of citizen. So that's another serious problem that has occurred with identity politics, that people are encouraged to see themselves in terms of an identity when, in fact, our political category is that of citizen. That's where we meet in mm. the public space as citizens. We can with be e- what we want to in
0: private. With equal rights.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah.
0: And uh, if we don't have equal rights, it's inevitable that you have a
1: tyranny. Because someone's deciding who's got what rights. That's right. Yes. Democracy is very difficult. And that's why it has to be, we have to safeguard it, we have to protect it, we have to, but we'll only protect it if we value it. And we'll only value it if we know what we are valuing. And what Mm. we are valuing is this entirely new political system that um, many of our ancestors fought for over centuries. Centuries,
0: blood and guts.
1: Yeah, which enables us, you know, doesn't matter what background you've got, it enables Mm. you to be free, to be a thinker. Was that the philosopher Immanuel Kant saying, you know, um, have the courage to? He didn't just talk about the importance of reason, but he talked about, he said, have courage to use your own reason. And that was when rationality was married to democracy. Mm. So the ideas of the Enlightenment, ideas of a human being, that this human being can think. The next stage is if there is one human being, if this creature can think, therefore, this person this creature can think about his or her destiny and can mm. have control over his or her destiny. And that's what made democracy possible. But democracy is based first on accepting that the human being is a rational thinking person.
0: And that's that key distinction, and again, talking about the language that you you have pointed out to us. Universalist thinking versus tribalist thinking is pivotal here. Now, the language has been the coup, hasn't it?
1: Oh, gosh, yes. And I remember speaking to um, people who have become very powerful tribalists, um, speaking to them back in the 90s, and they made it very clear to me that it was their ambition, their tactic was to control language because they were people who understood the power of language. I mean, the tribalists have been enormously successful um, because they have known what to do and they've started by controlling language. And through controlling language, you control thought.
0: The And, of course, we're in an age now, Elizabeth, where we have got extremely sloppy with language because we haven't adhered to the rules of good grammar. We haven't studied uh, Latin at school and the origins of correct usage and the importance of words. We've come along with the Internet where everyone can Tap, tap, tap away, as opposed to carefully crafting a letter or an argument or an essay. It's all just that, boom. And you notice it in the news. I find often a news article incomprehensible. I can't find out who did what to whom because it's sort of written so abstractly and poorly. And you compare that to letters written in the past, soldiers writing to their wives or to their mother, beautiful constructed letters, very clear, very precise, each word. So again, we've constructed a situation where, oh, apartheid is bad, we can't have this discrimination, this is terrible, and we oppose it, and we get rid of it, and then we seamlessly go to its opposite, well, Jump to it by saying, "Oh, we need equity, we need partnership," and we're with the clever use of words. We're setting up apartheid. Just in you're reverse.
1: absolutely right. These words are just thrown thrown out there and put in any sort of order, and. Grammar is essential because it's grammar which constructs the logic of a statement. You Mm. know, in any propositional statement, you have your subject, you have what it does, and you have what it does to whom or what. You have that basic logical pattern established in the grammar of a sentence. And um, once we stop requiring young people to understand that it's not just what they write, but they have to um, understand the structure of what they write, how it is organized, and that's what grammar means. Mm. Um, Arrangement of words in Mm. a logical manner. Um, And you have to know about grammar to be able to have a look at what you've written and say, yes, I can see the logic of what I have asserted or claimed or proposed in the sentence. So you know, I I just w- want my students to close their devices, take out pen and paper, and say, let the words that you are writing be linked to the speed at which you think them mm. And Not the speed are, at
0: which you can type.
1: That's right. And and worse still, um, when you start typing, you put the first letters in and then the word appears. Yes. When you have to think the word first and then write it down, and then you have to think the order of the word in the sentence, then you are controlling your thought.
0: It's a wonderful thing to think of William Shakespeare or Charles Dickens writing a manuscript with a quill pen. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose Dickens sort of didn't read, ah, Shakespeare didn't quite write it down in that way, but Dickens. And he could only write at a certain speed. Mm. And he couldn't readily correct it. You know, he couldn't just backspace, cut and copy, or cut and paste. And yet, the most beautiful words in the English language were put together. The most beautiful stories were told. And now everyone's an author, and... It's garbage, and when you sit down with someone to understand why they think the way they do, they're unable to articulate it because they're unable to write and think clearly
1: what i would really like rodney oh and i do hope this comes to pass is i've um i've developed um uh, the curriculum design coherence model it's a model for designing the curriculum mm-hmm. and it goes into uh, goes right down to topic level so you take a topic and use this model and start with a proposition and the proposition has to be um state the meaning of the topic that is, will be taught later on, the meaning of the topic to be designed, and it has to follow a particular, the grammar of any proposition, Um, so the verb becomes really important, what Mm. am I claiming that this thing is, so uh oh I would absolutely love my curriculum design coherence model to be to be used to design a national curriculum right down to topic level it's a huge amount of work and it would require people who know their subjects really really well and then also know how to design the subject according to logical principles mm. Mm. Let's see what happens.
0: And in that process of respect for language comes a respect for other people and their argument. Now, the other clever thing is how this agenda being pushed has done a remarkable job of not just defining the terms but of defining the abuse.
1: Oh, it's, I mean, when I say that tribalists have been enormously successful, I mean, all credit to them, they have. They have controlled um, those who are doing it and those who are having it done to them.
0: (laughs) And the likes of Paul Don Brash, who's trying to establish the original treaty and one law for all, can be denigrated Endlessly, is a racist, which of course, understanding language, understanding an argument, he's the exact opposite. Yeah. It's the people that are accusing him of being racist who are trying to defend a racist proposition.
1: This when is an extraordinary you, yes, achievement, just, Margaret. Yes. Well, when you separate a word from its meaning, then you can do anything with the word. You can make it mean whatever you want it to mean, and that's what's happened.
0: And it's used in a forceful way mm. and in a
1: powerful way to shut us all up. Yeah. The entitlement, the righteousness of it. Um, yes. You know, if you claim the moral high ground and if you say, if if, if your claim is we We are on this moral high. We are right because we are pursuing social justice for a group of people who have been victimized. So that's another category that has been created, the category of the victim.
0: Yes, and the oppressor. Tell me this, Margaret. Sorry, Elizabeth. Um, Tell me, you're saying this, going back to the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, educated Maori, their children, do you think this was some sort of long march through the institutions of a der- derivation of Marxism and that they were the carriers of this dreadful ideology, unaware of the significance and just sort of doing their best at the time with what they'd been taught? Or was it sort of knowingly sinister? I mean, that's what I can't figure out. It's, you know, you, you've, was, you've been it around wasn't,
1: it. wasn't driven by Marxism at all. It And as I say again, Rodney, it was not Māori who did it. It was a small group of, um, of families who... Um, and I'm thinking of people like um uh Winniata, um, mm-hmm. Sid Mead, um um Loves, people who educated um people who moved who were university educated in say the 50s, and in the 60s, um were able to were able to link in to the rise of uh, cultural culturalist ideology throughout the world, when there was a big shift from cl- understanding ourselves in terms of class to understanding ourselves in identity. Now, the small group of people were able to ride the wave at that time, and they acquired professorial positions in the universities. They were not Māori only. There were people okay. who um, identified as non-Māori as Pakia. They they and they referred to themselves in that way. And at that point we see the development of the term Pakia with a capital P. And mm. um, some of these, this very influential group, claimed that term. So there was there were those the this group of people who had important and influential positions in our universities. And who were then able to influence officials? Um, the uh, you would have witnessed this firsthand, Elizabeth. Yes, I did. Yes, a cultural mar- Marxism um, was really another intellectual movement at the okay. same time, and so it became a fe- fellow traveller. But really, we're looking at a group of people who in the shift from class to culture were able to carve out an area for themselves where they could acquire power and economic resources. And that area was to turn to the past and claim the inheritance of the past. They said, we are the inheritors of this past, this tribal past. But if you're going to claim that inheritance, then you have to um, establish the tribe as a going concern. And that's why we see retribalization really taking off from the late 70s. And this group um, could could say, uh, you know, this is our inheritance, it has been taken from us, we are going to claim it back. And because in the wider society there had been the shift to um, cultural identity. Um, you know, people studying their genealogies and so on, right throughout the world. You know, people were really keen Mm. on connecting to their pasts. They looked across and said, yeah, fine, this makes sense. Here is a group reclaiming the past. It's something we're all doing. We're no longer identifying as sort of working-class people, striving for improved conditions for ourselves. We are now identifying in these identity groups and claiming um, rights in terms of that that much smaller identity group. So, yes, it was a small group of a tribalists That's why I really insist on the term re mm. because that's what this group of people, um, whether or not they had Maori ancestry or not, were doing from... It really took off in the 70s, but from the 50s and 60s, they had established themselves in the universities with the development of Maori studies departments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of course, anthropology had lost its way at that point. And their long-term agenda may well have been hazy,
0: but each step of the way made them more important. Gave them. I don't know. Power. It wasn't
1: ha- it wasn't hazy. It oh, was okay. you no, know, it was, it was very clear that wow. there was a group of people wanting to reassert um um reassert the tr- the the tribe and to be um you know if you use the Marxist term, the vanguard of the proletariat, but in this case wow. it was the chiefs of retribalization. Got it. So it was it was an intellectual movement that was fully understood by those doing it. And that's what's been so successful. Because, My goodness. My I mean, goodness. the strategy is so very impressive. Very impressive. A total, total
0: coup, a total turning of universalist principles on the head, the inversion of our Westminster parliamentary democracy. Um, you And I sort of was half witnessing it, and thinking, well, this will never take off because it is so dangerous and so stupid, and yet and here course,
1: we are. When you have um, a group who have established themselves as leaders, then, of course, they need a constituency, they need followers. And so retribalization from the 80s into the 90s was really about um, – Uh, encouraging people to identify with these newly established tribes, um, Mm. tribes that were were able to say, we we are connected to the past. This is what we were called in the past. This is what we had in the past. So it is certainly true to say that on one hand, yes, um, there was a tribal revival, but it was a revival for a different world.
0: Completely different world.
1: Wow, that's... And of course, we
0: who enjoy and benefit from universalist living, the wealth, the freedom, the prosperity of it, we don't necessarily or usually understand what it's providing us. Mm -hmm. So you can be Um, a university student wandering around enjoying all the fruits of the world in terms of food and accommodation and warmth, but totally unaware and oblivious to how amazing that all is compared to historical times.
1: And how recent.
0: And how recent. Mm -hmm. And you can also be tinged with a guilt because here you are benefiting and I used to think that before I learnt your terms, I'd say embedded in Western civilization or embedded in universalist living is a sort of guilt that you've so profligate, so well-off relative, that you feel you must be despoiling nature in a dreadful way or ripping off some person or... And you try and assort your guilt by writing Pākehā with a capital P. Or, you know, going along, going along with these causes, because it somehow frees you of that guilt that you feel that you've yes, been. And, and yet, yet it's
1: actually it. a more specific guilt. You know, we are the generation um of pe- our parents had to fight wars. They had to live through a depression. Mm. Their parents were pioneers. And I'm talking about people who are both recent and previous yes. You know, yes. the late 19th century, a time of real development of the country in order to produce something for this prosperity. So suddenly you have a post war generation who reap all the benefits. Yes. And you think, it's 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 the guilt is actually quite specific. It is tied to our parents and grandparents and great grandparents. We are very yeah. aware that they created what we are enjoying. And so we want, yes, yes, and and of course, many for me, many became secularized, so there wasn't religion to um, provide a moral framework. So, we created a new moral framework, which was one of social justice.
0: Yes. How, how amazing. It's great. It's, it's amazing to see you bring it all together into this historical perspective and this coherence. There's a, another thing that um, I observe about this tribal way of thinking compared to universalist thinking. As a universalist, your grandfather could have treated my grandfather rather poorly. Some way or another, tricked him or something. I would look upon you as having no responsibility for that, Mm. right? And this is this idea of the sins of the father. They don't follow the son. Mm or the daughter, and yet with this re we don't just have a dispute following down seven generations. It is forever.
1: And it goes back to the gods, so it has a mythological um, uh, quality to it, a timelessness, a... Um, this is why it's sort of danger of becoming a cult. It it has this sort of sacredness to it, and for anyone to speak against it, um, you are insulting not just say the the idea of retribalization and the people who are pursuing it, but you are insulting the very gods themselves, who are being invoked with the, the within retribalization.
0: Oh my goodness, you're right.
1: Mm-hmm. And of course, indigenous. I mean, indigenous is directly connected to the land and to the creation. So once again, there's that mythological framework um, placed right around this ideology, and no wonder it's difficult for people to criticise it because if you criticise it, you are you are criticising something holy, something sacred. So no wonder you're (laughs) you're a wicked person. And, of course,
0: this this is this madness we have now where building a bridge across a river offends the gods.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Which, to a universalist, we're very respectful of people's spiritual beliefs, but we don't let them impinge on society as a whole at great cost.
1: You don't bring them into engineering. You don't have a no, New Zealand or advertising video, which the, the uh, combines, walker in the sky. which does an appalling, um, it conflates these two very different ways of understanding the world. And that's why that video is appalling. appalling. Here we have contemporary engineering, these enormous things being able to fly as a result of incredible science and physics, and engineering, and being equated to um, the you know the gods um, I know. I know. causing things to happen. No, you know, science the causation understood in science is uh, the is physical properties, physical processes. Net, it's a naturalist approach to the world. The supernaturalist approach, where you start bringing in the idea that somehow there is a supernatural, a mythological causation going on, it is very dangerous for young people's thinking. Very dangerous. That's that's what's happening in our schools with the um, the, uh, insertion of maturanga Māori or any type of traditional knowledge as... Um, a way to think. Of course, we should study about traditional knowledge. Mm. So in literature, in language studies, in um and in history, say the history of um of of how traditional people lived, of course, this is part of who we are as humans. But to induct young people into thinking that causation has this um vitalist this notion that there is some vital spirit, some force. I mean, that is just so anti-science. What we are doing is creating a generation of young people who will not be able to think scientifically.
0: No, it's exactly right. And not even they will see you and myself and this conversation as immoral. Yes, yes. And yes. offensive. Yes. And to you and I, brought up in the universalist tradition, we're just talking. Yeah. We're having a debate. We're learning. We're discussing.
1: Everything is. Everything should be spoken. Everything should be put out there into the sunlight so it can be defended and justified. And um, if you can't, in the end, you make a claim Everyone should be able to make claims, to propose something, to Mm assert something. And someone else must be able to say, okay, you justify it. I disagree with it. And here are my reasons. Mm -hmm. And let's look at the, you know, it's informed opinion, isn't it? And informed opinion is the justification. So we have unjustified opinion and we have justified opinion. Mm -hmm. Well, everything I say, publicly i say because i can justify it
0: mm. and you're willing to be proved
1: wrong yes yes of course that's right but it's only because i actually say it and justify it mm. that someone else can come along and say ah there's some there's a hole in your justification it lacks but- logic here the evidence you've used is not does not support it in the way you claimed so it is only when you speak and you put the claim that someone else has the opportunity to interrogate it and maybe show that it is wrong. And, of course, at that point I would have to agree and I would have to rethink my argument.
0: But, of course, the tribalist doesn't have to do that because they can just dismiss you as being colonised a dinosaur, an Uncle Tom, all those words, right? (laughs) They don't actually engage with an argument because they don't believe in it. They're tribalists. They're they're a cult. They're religious. And they're power-hungry. Willie Jackson is my preeminent example because he is such, in his debate and discussion, is so thuggish, which is um, who, who can sort of verbally assault that other side? And you can't imagine him ever saying, oh, well, that's a good point. I would,
1: have, I would find it very difficult to talk to Willie Jackson because he would throw words at me and the words would all be jumbled and they wouldn't have been arranged in a logical way. So I wouldn't know United. exactly what he was saying. So I wouldn't be able to discuss the point because I wouldn't be able to find the point.
0: But as they say in modern parlance, that's a feature, not a bug. That's part of their power. It is. I used to think it was like a word salad Mm. uh, defining stupidity. But what it is, is a word salad and rhetoric that has given Willie and his ilk tyrannical power over the rest of us. And because of, you say, what's happened within the universities and now within the primary schools and high schools our institutions and organisations like our legacy media and our corporates go along with it. And so when you come to claw your way out of this, Elizabeth, it's not a matter of just reasserting the Articles Treaty because you have to go right back to your curriculum.
1: Yeah, that's right. Something I'm very interested in nowadays is looking at these, um, uh, it's it's known as um, time perception, how people, um, the psychological approach to time itself. And there are two different ways of understanding time. Mm. There's spontaneous time perception, which is what we all have. It's part of our primary thinking, where we, um, um, you know, our collective memory, say the collective memory of our family. Uh, And it's cyclic, seasonal. All our traditional ancestors all had spontaneous time perception, Um, seasonal, cyclic, social time. Is we're probably able to go back as far as great grandparents, and that's about it. Um, and then there is historical time perception, and that's a very modern way of thinking. And it's known in in the literature as secondary thinking, secondary cognition, and it's a way of thinking about time in terms in an objective way, in terms of causation and context. So you take yourself out of it. And you study it as something, as an object separate from yourself, and you look at uh, these facts and these these events, these people happened at a certain time, what was the context of the time, what causes caused the actions, what did they then go on to cause to happen. So it's a very different way of understanding time. Now, the danger, and it's a huge danger of the so-called refreshed curriculum, this new so-called New Zealand histories curriculum, can't bring myself to say the term histories, it's history, is that it is based on spontaneous time perception. So, as well as young uh, children and young people being imbued in a non-scientific um, way of thinking, that will be reinforced by them being imbued in with spontaneous time perception, and that means they can be told. The, mem- the collective memory of the nation will be what we wanted to have happened, not what really happened. And, of course, we know even in our families we will select. Oh, yes. Policies. There are some things that we will omit. <laughs> for probably Yes, a- and, and how poor
0: your own memory of events oh, is. Oh, when, yes. when, when you get talking to a sibling about some traumatic event, and you have it completely wrong as a yes. child or even as an adult. You can have you can have two people, I mean, the police are well aware of this, yes. two witnesses to a crime, and they have completely, genuinely, completely different views, you know, the next day. And you're right, this history where it has been debated and discussed and evidence collected uh, is so significant. I can see what you're saying because you see it outside of yourself. Yeah. It's, it's a history that we collect evidence
1: about. And so we know about 1066 because it's there's a tapestry. It's not what you wanted. No. It's not what you wanted to have happened. It's no. what actually did happen. And I'll add a rider to the best of our, our scholarship. And it must be scholarship that where there are verifiable, independent, verifiable sources. Yes. And we are always ready if new sources come uh, arrive, if there's new material, new information, then we will change that that historical knowledge. We will update it according to new yes. evidence. Um, yes. But it and yes, that takes,
0: takes you back hands-based. to the that takes you back to the two treaties, doesn't it? Yes, it
1: does. yeah.
0: because the history, the actual history of the Articles Treaty, is of no interest.
1: And yet. We cannot understand the 1840 history if we do not know the history, those four, five decades of intertribal warfare that preceded it, and also British history, the fact that Britain did not want to colonise New Zealand. Did not want it. We need to know the history of all the people who were involved. And then when we come to this invented Principles Treaty of the 1980s. Once again, we need to know the history of it. Who were the people involved? What did they do? For example, Jeffrey Palmer, Happy Te Hiuhu, um the uh, people who became professors of Māori studies um, in the 70s, um, the officials, and so on. We need to know all the, the people involved and what they did, and then what they said about what they did. And then Mm. what others said about what they... I mean, history, the scholarship in history is incredible. It's a beautiful thing. We have so few historians in this country. What we need in our universities is large history departments with top-notch historians um, who are... Dealing in
0: facts. Yes. Facts and evidence. Tell me, Elizabeth, are you optimistic of the future?
1: Oh, um, oh, um, am I optimistic? Well, I suppose, in a way, I must be because I wouldn't keep writing and thinking about these things if I wasn't. Um, but I think retribalization, given that it's aligned to other communitarian um, movements, you know, the idea of the collective, um, is really pushing against. The shift to the notion of the individual that we've seen over the last 200 years mm. the very old communitarian um way of being in the world is really mm. making a push to claim um you know to come back to to um, defeat. The basis of democracy, which is the notion of the individual, the human being who can think for him or herself. So I think there's a very um, deep existential value um, battle going on between two very different ways of us being human.
0: Um, Fascinating, because it's been long uh, argued by philosophers that we have this Continual war with our tribalist roots. Yeah, yeah. That it's imprinted in our DNA that we're, we're this appeal of tribalism to us versus living in a modern world, a universalist world where you have to accept responsibility and cock ups and everything is hard. Science is hard. History is hard because you've got to work at it and get the facts and the facts don't just present themselves, whereas this tribal world is Mm. an easy world. You see another, you just... another
1: another push for it is the, this this um, um, emphasis on the notion of safety. Once again, that creates yes. children with a psychological need to be cared for, rather than yes. to, to learn to be the authors of their own destiny. Yes. It is very difficult to be a modern individual, and our education should be giving children, the um, the way of thinking which enables them to do it. And we are not doing that at a very deep level.
0: I have been talking with Professor Elizabeth Rata. Oh, my goodness. We started off talking about the two treaties, and that was what we were going to talk about. But <laughs> I'm sorry, I may have spoken too much, listeners. But we went into this conversation, and... What a tour de force Prof. Elizabeth Rata gave us in terms of insight and understanding because I'm sure listeners are like me. We are bewildered by it, absolutely bewildered by what our world has become and struggle to grasp it and it's easy to get angry and here we have Elizabeth Rata coming on our show who has been a first-hand witness in the Maori world and in the university world of what has happened, and being a keen observer of it, and able to dissect it, explain it, diagnose it, and actually empower us, that we gain our senses, Elizabeth. Is it not?
1: I certainly hope so, yes. yeah,
0: Elizabeth, I, I'm sorry I dragged you a little bit off the articles, but it was a free-flowing conversation, but I feel as though we went deeper and wider, into the malaise.
1: And that's what we need as as people. We need to think deeply, to talk um, expansively. It's what we need to do all the time.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I do hope you'll come on again because um, it's the highlight. You are the highlight, the the wisdom and the insight. You can send me a text and at 2057, email me inbox at realitycheck.radio. That was Professor Elizabeth Rata. Oh my goodness. What a treasure. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Um, we were blessed. We're truly blessed by the people we have amongst us and who will come on our show and talk to us and share their knowledge and their lifelong passion. Thank you for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10am.